0: chapter 52 part 2 of a popular history of france from the earliest times volume 6 this librivox recording is in the public domain a popular history of france from the earliest times volume 6 by françois guizot translated by robert black chapter 52 louis the 15th the ministry of cardinal fleury 1723 to 1748 part 2 He took possession of it without fuss or any external manifestation. Caring only for real authority, he advised Louis XV not to create any premier minister, and to govern by himself like his great-grandfather. The king took this advice as every other, and left Fleury to govern. This was just what the bishop intended. A sleepy calm succeeded the commotions which had been caused by the inconsistent and spasmodic government of the duke. Galas and silly expenses gave place to a wise economy, the real and important blessing of Fleury's administration. Commerce and industry recovered confidence, business was developed, the increase of the revenues justified a diminution of taxation, war, which was imminent at the moment of the duke's fall, seemed to be escaped. The Bishop of Frégieux became Cardinal Fleury. The Court of Rome paid on the nail for the service rendered it by the new minister in freeing the clergy from the tax of the fiftieth, or Impot du Cinquantième. Consecrated to God, and kept aloof from the commerce of men, had been Fleury's expression, the dues of the Church are irrevocable, and cannot be subject to any tax, whether of ratification or any other. End quote. the clergy responded to this pleasant exposition of principles by a gratuitous gift of five millions strife ceased in every quarter france found herself at rest without lustre as well as without prospect it was not henceforth at versailles that the destinies of europe were discussed and decided the dismissal of the infanta had struck a deadly blow at the frail edifice of the quadruple alliance fruit of the intrigues and diplomatic ability of cardinal dubois philip v and elizabeth farnese deeply wounded by the affront put upon them had hastened to give the infanta to the prince of brazil heir to the throne of portugal at the same time that the prince of the asturias espoused a daughter of john v under cover of this alliance agreeable as it was to england the faithful patron of portugal the king of spain was negotiating elsewhere with the emperor charles the sixth the most ancient and hitherto the most implacable of his enemies this prince had no son and wished to secure the succession to his eldest daughter the archduchess maria theresa the pragmatic sanction which declared this wish awaited the ascent of europe that of spain was of great value she offered besides to open her ports to the ostend company lately established by the emperor to compete against the dutch trade the house of austria divided the house of bourbon by opposing to one another the two branches of france and spain the treaty of vienna was concluded on the first of may seventeen twenty five the two sovereigns renounced all pretensions to each other's dominions respectively and proclaimed on both sides full amnesty for the respective partisans the emperor recognized the hereditary rights of don carlos to the duchies of tuscany parma and piacenza he at the same time promised his good offices with england to obtain restitution of gibraltar and mahon in spite of the negotiations already commenced with the duke of lorraine hopes were even held out to the two sons of elizabeth farnese don carlos and don philip of obtaining the hands of the archduchesses daughters of the Emperor. When the official treaty was published and the secret articles began to transpire, Europe was in commotion at the new situation in which it was placed. George I repaired to his German dominions in order to have a closer view of the Emperor's movements. There the Count of Broglie soon joined him in the name of France. The King of Prussia, Frederick William I, the King of England's son-in-law, was summoned to Hanover passionate and fantastic tyrannical addicted to the coarsest excesses the king of prussia had nevertheless managed to form an excellent army of sixty thousand men at the same time amassing a military treasure amounting to twenty-eight millions he joined not without hesitation the treaty of hanover concluded on the third of september seventeen twenty five between france and england the hollanders in spite of their desire to ruin the ostend company had not yet signed the convention frederick william was disturbed at their coming in say i declare against the emperor said he in a letter which he communicated on the fifth of december to the ambassadors of france and england he will not fail to get the muscovites and poles to act against me i ask whether their majesties will then keep my rear open england completely surrounded by sea and france happening to be covered by strong places consider themselves pretty safe, whilst the greater part of my dominions are exposed to anything it shall seem good to attempt. By this last treaty, then, I engage in war for the benefit of Mr. Hollander and company, that they may be able to sell their tea, coffee, cheese, and crockery dearer. Those gentlemen will not do the least thing for me, and I am to do everything for them. Gentlemen, tell me, is it fair if you deprive the emperor of his ships and ruin his Ostend trade, will he be a less emperor than he is at this moment? The pink of all, or le pot aux rose, is to deprive the emperor of provinces, but which, and to whose share will they fall? Where are the troops? Where is the needful wherewith to make war? Since it seems good to commence the dance, it must of course be commenced. After war comes peace." "'Shall I be forgotten? Shall I be the last of all? Shall I have to sign perforce?' The coarse, common sense of the Vandal soon prevailed over family alliances. Frederick William broke with France in England in order to rally to the Emperor's side. Russia, but lately so attentive to France, was making advances to Spain. Quote, "'The Tsar's envoy is the most taciturn Muscovite that ever came from Serbia.' wrote marshal Tesset. goodman don miguel Guerra is the minister with whom he treats and the effect of eight or ten apoplexies is that he has to hold his head with his hands else his mouth would infallibly twist round over his shoulder during their audience they seat themselves opposite one another in armchairs, and after a quarter of an hour's silence the muscovite opens his mouth and says Sir, I have orders from the Emperor, my master, to assure the Catholic King that he loves him very much. And I, replies Guerra, do assure you that the King, my master, loves your master the Emperor very much. After this laconic conversation, they stare at one another for a quarter of an hour without saying anything, and the audience is over. The tradition handed down by Peter the Great forbade any alliance with England. M. de Compredon, french ambassador at petersburg was seeking to destroy this prejudice one of the empress's ministers yokosinski rushed abruptly from the conference he was half drunk and he ran to the church where the remains of the tsar were lying quote, oh my dear master he cried before all the people rise from the tomb and see how thy memory is trampled under foot antipathy towards england nevertheless kept catherine I aloof from the Hanoverian league she made alliance with the emperor france was not long before she made overtures to Spain philip v always found it painful to endure family dissensions he became reconciled with his nephew and accepted the intervention of cardinal fleury in his disagreements with england the alliance signed at seville on the twenty ninth of november seventeen twenty nine secured to spain in return for certain commercial advantages the co of england in italy the duke of parma had just died the infanti don carlos supported by an english fleet took possession of his dominions elizabeth farnese had at last set foot in italy she no longer encountered there the able and ambitious monarch whose diplomacy had for so long governed the affairs of the peninsula Victor Amadeo had just abdicated. Scarcely a year had passed from the date of that resolution, when suddenly, from fear it was said, of seeing his father resume power, the young king, Charles Emmanuel, had him arrested in his castle of Pontarlier. It will be a fine subject for a tragedy, this that is just now happening to Victor, king of Sardinia, writes M. d'Argenson. What a catastrophe without a death! a great king who plagued europe with his virtues and his vices with his courage his artifices and his perfidies who had formed round him a court of slaves who had rendered his dominion formidable by his industry and his labors indefatigable in his designs unresting in every branch of government cherishing none but great projects credited in every matter with greater designs than he had yet been known to execute this king abdicates unexpectedly and almost immediately here he finds himself arrested by his son, whose benefactor he had been so recently, and so extraordinarily. This son is a young prince without merit, without courage, and without capacity, gentle and under control. His ministers persuaded him to be ungrateful. He accomplishes the height of crime without having crime in his nature, and here is his father shut up like a bear in a prison, guarded at sight like a maniac, and separated from the wife whom he had chosen for consolation in his retirement public indignation however soon forced the hand of charles emmanuel's minister victor amadeo was released his wife detained in shameful captivity was restored to him he died soon afterwards in that same castle of Pontarlier, whence he had been carried off without a voice being raised in his favor by the princes who were bound to him by the closest ties of blood. The efforts made in common by Fleury and Robert Walpole, Prime Minister of the King of England, had for a long while been successful in maintaining the general peace. The unforeseen death of Augustus of Saxony, King of Poland, suddenly came to trouble it. It was thenceforth the unhappy fate of Poland to be a constant source of commotion and discord in Europe the elector of saxony son of augustus the second was supported by austria and russia the national party in poland invited stanislav he was elected at the diet by sixty thousand men of family and set out to take possession of the throne reckoning upon the promises of his son-in-law and on the military spirit which was reviving in france the young men burned to win their spurs the old generals of louis the fourteenth were tired of idleness the ardor of cardinal fleury did not respond to that of the friends of king stanislaus russia and austria made an imposing display of force in favor of the elector of saxony france sent tardily a body of fifteen hundred men this ridiculous reinforcement had not yet arrived when stanislaus obliged to withdraw from warsaw had already shut himself up in dunswick the austrian general had invested the place news of the bombardment of danzig greeted the little french corps as they approached the fort of vexelmund their commander saw his impotence instead of landing his troops he made sail for copenhagen the french ambassador at that court count Plelo, was indignant to see his countrymen's retreat and hastily collecting a hundred volunteers he summoned to him the chiefs of the expeditionary corps how could you resolve upon not fighting at any price he asked Quote, it is easy to say rejoined one of the officers roughly when you're safe in your closet Quote, i shall not be there long exclaims the count and presses them to return with him to Danzig. the officer in command of the detachment m de la perouse lamotte yields to his entreaties they set out both of them persuaded at the same time of the uselessness of their enterprise and of the necessity they were under for the honour of france to attempt it before embarking, Count Plelot wrote to M. de Chauvelin, the then keeper of the seals, quote, I am sure not to return. I commend to you my wife and children. End quote. Scarcely had the gallant little band touched land beneath the fort of Wechselmund when they marched up to the Russian lines, opening a way through the pikes and muskets in hopes of joining the besieged, who at the same time effected a sally, Already the enemy began to recoil at sight of such audacity when M. de Pleilot fell mortally wounded. The enemy's battalions had hemmed in the French. La Perouse succeeded, however, in effecting his retreat, and brought away his little band into the camp they had established under shelter of the fort. For a month the French kept up a rivalry in courage with the defenders of Danzig, when at last they capitulated on the 23rd of June General Munich had conceived such esteem for their courage that he granted them leave to embark with arms and baggage. A few days later, King Stanislaus escaped alone from Danzig, which was at length obliged to surrender on the 7th of July, and sought refuge in the dominions of the King of Prussia. Some Polish lords went and joined him at Königsberg. Partisan war continued still, but the arms and influence of Austria and Russia had carried the day the National Party was beaten in Poland. The Pope released the Polish gentry from the oath they had made never to entrust the crown to a foreigner. Augustus Third, recognized by the mass of the nation, became the docile tool of Russia, whilst in Germany and in Italy the Austrians found themselves attacked simultaneously by France, Spain, and Sardinia. Marshal Berwick had taken the fort of Kell in the month of December 1733. He had forced the lines of the Austrians at Erlingen at the commencement of the campaign of 1734, and he had just opened trenches against Philipsburg when he pushed forward imprudently in a reconnaissance between the fires of the besiegers and the besieged. A ball wounded him mortally, and he expired immediately, like Marshal Turenne. He was sixty-three. The Duke of Noailles, who at once received the Marshal's baton, succeeded him in the command of the army by agreement with Marshal d'Asfeld. Philipsburg was taken after forty-eight days' open trenches, without Prince Eugène, all the while within hail, making any attempt to relieve the town. He had not approved of the war, quote, of three emperors that I have served, he would say, the first, Leopold, was my father, the Emperor Joseph was my brother, this one is my master, End quote. Eugène was old and worn out. He preserved his ability, but his ardor was gone. Marshal Noailles and Dasfeld did not agree. France did not reap her advantages. The campaign of 1735 hung fire in Germany. It was not more splendid in Italy, where the outset of the war had been brilliant. Presumptuous as ever, in spite of his 82 years, Villars had started for Italy, saying to Cardinal Fleury, the king may dispose of Italy. I am going to conquer it for him." And indeed within three months nearly the whole of Milanese was reduced. Cremona and Pizziguitone had surrendered. But already King Charles Emmanuel was relaxing his efforts with the prudent selfishness customary with his house. The Sardinian contingents did not arrive. The Austrians had seized a passage over the Po. Villard, however, was preparing to force it, when a large body of the enemy came down upon him. The king of Sardinia was urged to retire. "'That is not the way to get out of this,' cried the marshal, and sword in hand he charged at the head of the bodyguard. Charles Emmanuel followed his example. The Austrians were driven in. "'Sir,' said Villard to the king, who was complimenting him, "'these are the last sparks of my life.' Thus, at departing, I take my leave of it." Death, in fact, had already seized his prey. The aged Marshal had not time to return to France to yield up his last breath there. He was expiring at Turin when he heard of Marshal Berwick's death before Philipsburg. "'That fellow always was lucky,' said he." On the 17th of June, 1734, Villard died, in his turn, by a strange coincidence, in the very room in which he had been born, when his father was French ambassador at the court of the Duke of Savoy. Some days later, Marshals Broglie and Coigny defeated the Austrians before Parma. The general-in-chief, M. de Mercy, had been killed on the 19th of September. The Prince of Wurtemberg, in his turn, succumbed at the Battle of Guastala. And yet these successes on the part of the French produced no serious result the spaniards had become masters of the kingdom of naples and of nearly all sicily the austrians had fallen back on the Tyrol, keeping a garrison at mantua only the duke of noailles then at the head of the army was preparing for the siege of the place in order to achieve that deliverance of italy which was as early as then the dream of france but the king of sardinia and the queen of spain were already disputing for mantua the sardinian troops withdrew and it was in the midst of his forced inactivity that the Duke of Noailles heard of the armistice signed in Germany. Cardinal Fleury, weary of the war which he had entered upon with regret, disquieted, too, at the new complications which he foresaw in Europe, had already commenced negotiations. The preliminaries were signed at Vienna in the month of October, 1735. The conditions of the treaty astonished Europe, Cardinal Fleury had renounced the ambitious idea suggested to him by Chauvelin. He no longer aspired to impose upon the emperor the complete emancipation of Italy, but he made such disposition as he pleased of the states there, and reconstituted the territories according to his fancy. The kingdom of Naples and the two Sicilies were secured to Don Carlos, who renounced Tuscany and the duchies of Parma and Piacenza these three principalities were to form the apanage of duke francis of lorraine betrothed to the archduchess maria theresa there it was that france was to find her share of the spoil in exchange for the dominions formed for him in italy duke francis ceded the duchies of lorraine and Bar to king stanislaus the latter formerly renounced the throne of poland at the same time preserving the title of king and resuming possession of his property after him, Lorraine and the Barrois were to be united to the crown of France, as dower and heritage of that queen who had been but lately raised to the throne by a base intrigue, and who thus secured to her new country, a province so often taken and retaken, an object of so many treaties and negotiations, and thenceforth so tenderly cherished by France. The negotiations had been protracted. England, stranger as she had been to the war, had taken part in the diplomatic proposals the queen of spain had wanted to keep the states in the north of italy as well as those in the south shall i not have a new heir given me by and by said the duke of tuscany john gaston de medici last and unworthy scion of that illustrious family who was dying without posterity which is the third child that france and the empire mean to father upon me the King of Sardinia gained only Novara and Tortona, whilst the Emperor recovered Milanese. France renounced all her conquests in Germany. She guaranteed the pragmatic sanction. Russia evacuated Poland. Peace seemed to be firmly established in Europe. Cardinal Fleury hastened to consolidate it by removing from power the ambitious and daring politician whose influence he dreaded. Quote, Chauvelin had juggled the war from Fleury said the prince of prussia afterwards the great frederick fleury in turn juggles peace in the ministry from him Quote, it must be admitted wrote m that the situation of cardinal fleury and the keeper of the seals towards one another is a singular one just now the cardinal disinterested sympathetic with upright views doing nothing save from excess of importunity and measuring his compliance by the number, and not the weight of the said importunities, the minister, I say, considers himself bound to fill his place as long as he is in this world. It is only as his own creature that he has given so much advancement to the keeper of the seals, considering him wholly his, good, amiable, and of solid merit, without the aid of any intrigue, and so his adjunction to the premier minister has made the keeper of the seals a butt for all the ministers he has taken upon himself all refusals, and left to the cardinal the honour of all the benefits and graces. He has transported himself in imagination to the time when he would be sole governor, and he would have had affairs set in advance upon the footing on which he calculated upon placing them. It must be admitted, as regards that, that he has ideas too lofty and grand for the state. He would like to set Europe by the ears, as the great ministers did." He is accused of resembling monsieur de louvois to whom he is related now the cardinal is of a character the very opposite to that of this adjunct of his m chauvelin has embarked him upon many great enterprises upon that of the late war amongst others but scarcely is his eminence embarked by means of some passion that is worked upon when the chill returns and the desire of getting out of the business becomes another passion with him altogether i see no great harm in the keeper of the seals being no longer minister for i do not like any but a homely or bourgeoise policy whereby one lives on good terms with one's neighbours and whereby one is merely their arbiter for the sake of working a good long while and continuously at the task of perfecting the home affairs of the kingdom and rendering frenchmen happy m d'argenson made no mistake the era of a great foreign policy had passed away for france a king who was frivolous and indifferent to his business as well as to his glory a minister aged economizing and timid an ambitious few with views more bold than discreet such were henceforth the instruments at the disposal of france the resources were insufficient for the internal government the peace of vienna and the annexation of lorraine were the last important successes of external policy Chauvelin had the honour of connecting his name therewith, before disappearing for ever in his retreat at Grosbois, to expend his life in vain regrets for lost power, and in vain attempts to recover it. Peace reigned in Europe, and Cardinal Fleury governed France without rival and without opposition. He had but lately, like Richelieu, to whom, however, he did not care to be compared, triumphed over parliamentary revolt jealous of their ancient traditional rites the parliament claimed to share with the government the care of watching over the conduct of the clergy it was on that ground that they had rejected the introduction of the legend of gregory the seventh recently canonized at rome and had sought to mix themselves up in the religious disputes excited just then by the pretended miracles wrought at the tomb of deacon paris a pious and modest jansenist who had lately died in the odour of sanctity in the parish of Saint-Médard. The cardinal had ordered the cemetery to be closed, in order to cut short the strange spectacles presented by the convulsionists, and to break down the opposition of Parliament the king had ordered, at a bed of justice, the registration of all the papal bulls succeeding the unigenitus. In vain had daguesseau reappointed to the chancellorship, exhorted the Parliament to yield. He had fallen in public esteem. Abbé Pernell, ecclesiastical counsellor, as distinguished for his talent as for his courage, proposed a solemn declaration, analogous at bottom to the maxims of the Gallican Church, which had been drawn up by Bossuet in the assembly of the clergy of France. The decision of the parliament was quashed by the council. An order from the king forbidding discussion was brought to the court by Count Morepas. Its contents were divined, and Parliament refused to open it. The King iterated his injunctions. Quote, if His Majesty were at the Louvre, cried Abbe Parnell, it would be the court's duty to go and let him know how his orders are executed. Marly is not so very far, shouted a young appeal court councillor or aux enquête eagerly. Quote, to Marly, to Marly, at once, repeated the whole chamber the old councillors themselves murmured between their teeth quote, to Marly. fourteen carriages conveyed to Marly fifty magistrates headed by the presidents the king refused to receive them in vain the premier president insisted upon it to cardinal fleury the monarch and his parliament remained equally obstinate quote, what a sad position exclaimed abbe not to be able to fulfil one's duties without falling into the crime of disobedience. We speak and we are forbidden a word, we deliberate and we are threatened. What remains for us, then, in this deplorable position, but to represent to the King the impossibility of existing under form of Parliament, without having permission to speak, the impossibility by consequence of continuing our functions." Abbé Pernelle was carried off in the night, and confined in the Abbey of Corbigny in Nivernais, of which he was titular head. Other councillors were arrested. A hundred and fifty magistrates immediately gave in their resignation. Rising in the middle of the assembly, they went out two in two, dressed in their long scarlet robes, and threaded the crowd in silence. There was a shout as they went, quote, There go true Romans and fathers of their country, quote, All those who saw this procession, says the advocate Barbier, declare that it was something august and overpowering." The government did not accept the resignations. The struggle continued. A hundred and thirty-nine members received letters under the King's seal, or lettres de cachet, exiling them to the four quarters of France. The grand chamber had been spared. The old councillors, alone remaining, and registered purely and simply the declarations of the Keeper of the Seals. Once more the Parliament was subdued. It had testified its complete political impotence. The Iron Hand of Richelieu, the perfect address of Mazarin, were no longer necessary to silence it. The prudent moderation, the reserved frigidity of Cardinal Fleury, had sufficed for the purpose. The Minister, victorious over the Parliament, had become the arbiter of europe said frederick the second in his history of my time the standard of intelligences and of wills had everywhere sunk down to the level of the government of france unhappily the day was coming when the thrones of europe were about to be occupied by stronger and more expanded minds whilst france was passing slowly from the hands of a more than octogenarian minister into those of a voluptuous monarch governed by his courtiers and his favourites frederick the second maria theresa lord chatham catherine the second were about to appear upon the scene the french had none to oppose them but cardinal fleury with one foot in the grave and after him king louis the fifteenth and madame de pompadour it was amidst this state of things that the death of the emperor charles the sixth on the twentieth of october seventeen forty occurred to throw europe into a new ferment of discord and war Maria Theresa, the emperor's eldest daughter, was twenty-three years old, beautiful, virtuous, and of a lofty and resolute character. Her rights to the paternal heritage had been guaranteed by all Europe. Europe, however, soon rose, almost in its entirety, to oppose them. The elector of Bavaria claimed the domains of the House of Austria, by virtue of a will of Ferdinand I, father of Charles V, The King of Poland urged the rights of his wife, daughter of the Emperor Joseph I. Spain put forth her claims to Hungary and Bohemia, a panage of the elder branch of the House of Austria. Sardinia desired her share in Italy. Prussia had a new sovereign, who spoke but little, but was the first to act. Kept for a long while by his father in cruel captivity, always carefully held aloof from affairs and to pass the time obliged to engage in literature and science frederick the second had ascended the throne in august seventeen forty with the reputation of a mind cultivated liberal and accessible to noble ideas voltaire with whom he had become connected had trumpeted his praises everywhere the first act of the new king revealed qualities of which voltaire had no conception on the twenty third of december after leaving a masked ball he started post-haste for the frontier of Silesia, where he had collected 30,000 men. Without preliminary notice, without declaration of war, he at once entered the Austrian territory, which was scantily defended by 3,000 men and a few garrisons. Before the end of January 1741, the Prussians were masters of Silesia. I am going, I fancy, to play your game, Frederick had said, as he set off, to the french ambassador if the aces come to me we will share end End of chapter fifty two part two